mentioned, we've been on a wonderful journey over the last uh, number of weeks, uh, looking at the state of our heart, scanning our heart, asking the question, how's our heart? And it's an important question because it has to do with the heart being the wellspring of our life. And we've been asked to examine ourselves. I don't know about you, but that is hard work. It is not easy to stay with self-examination. Think of a Socrates who said that the unexamined life is not worth living, but it is tough work to do that examined life. Uh, to understand what motivates us, to understand what influences our hearts, to look inside and really get a picture of that, that's lifelong work that we are called to do. This last message in the series I've entitled Heartbreak with the subtitle, The Heart in Whom God Dwells, because the scripture does tell us that there is a heart condition to which God is drawn or attracted. Scripture states that there is a state of the heart which allows our Lord to comfortably take up residence in us. And God resides most readily in a broken heart. A theme that runs through the Old and New Testament is that the big God occupies a small space, the heart that knows its unworthiness of that big God to occupy. So let's take a a quick look from the Old to the New Testament, arrive then at the person of David as the figure that we're going to be looking at this morning. But let's start in the book of Isaiah, where this theme is first mentioned for us today. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you would build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so that they have come into being, declares the Lord. And this is the one I esteem, who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. Or Isaiah 57, verse 15. For this is what the high and lofty one says, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. When Jesus was articulating his vision of the kingdom of God, that we could step into this new regime that he was establishing, he did it through what we call the Beatitudes, the attitudes of being. He said, here's the nature of the kingdom that I'm establishing and the kind of heart necessary to feel comfortable in that kingdom. And where does he begin? The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, that word blessed is a hard one to translate in English. Uh, Some have translated it fortunate or happy or congratulations. Uh, My favorite one is from the theologian Karl Barth, who translates it, you lucky bums are the poor in spirit, uh, are those Uh, who are spiritually destitute, who come to God with open hands and without human resources, because then you will really resonate with the kingdom of God. That's the entry point into the kingdom. And even Jesus said of himself, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. And then he says this about himself, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But I think the biblical character for us who is perhaps most instructive for us is 
the character of King David because he illustrates what a broken heart is all about. In Psalm 51, verse 17, we read about his own personal experience of heartbreak. When he writes, The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, how did David come to understand this truth? How was David's heart broken? Well, there are two Psalms, Psalm 32 and 51, that have a backdrop of immoral failure that David went through that led to his broken heart. And he writes about that in those two Psalms, and we'll be drawing from those Psalms this morning. But we find his story of moral failure in excruciating detail in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. So let me retell you that story so you get a sense of the background behind Psalm 32 and 51. Scripture says that it was in the spring of the year when the kings go off to war. In other words, David was to lead his troops into battle against the marauding neighboring nomadic tribes. But instead, this year, he sent off Joab as the commander of his troops, and he stayed behind. And so he had some idle time, which we know is the devil's playground. And David filled that time with following his own lusts. And so one lazy afternoon, he's up on the rooftops and he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And because he's king, he orders his servants to bring that woman to him, knowing that she's the wife of a man in his army, but he has his way with her. Now, this misdeed would lead to an avalanche of treachery. He soon received a report back from Bathsheba that she was pregnant. The cover-up then begins. And as we know, it's oftentimes not the original misdeed that's worse. It's the cover-up that follows that becomes even more treacherous. And so David, wanting to cover this up, sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who's in the army, brings him back, hopes he will go in to be with his wife and lie with her, as the Scripture says, and he will be none the wiser, thinking that this child is his. What he doesn't count on is that Uriah is more loyal to his troops than he is to the king. And says, I'm not going to go enjoy the pleasures of my home when my fellow troops are out there in the field. Well, that plan not working, David has to put plan B into effect. So he sends Uriah back to the front lines with a sealed envelope to give to Joab, the commander, which contain Uriah's own death warrant. And in it are instructions. Joab placed Uriah at the thickest of the battle. And when the battle is fiercest, have his fellow soldiers pull back away from him. He will be exposed, and then he will be killed in battle. And this is what he does. As the saying goes, oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. David, in a very short period of time, became abuser of his power, frankly, a rapist, a plotter of murder, and then he brings in accessories to implicate them as well in his deeds. And this is the man of whom God said, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of the people. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. What? David's behavior, and this was said about David. How do you bring those Two together. 
where A.W. Tozer wrote, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly unless he has hurt him deeply. And of course, David was the one who hurt himself deeply and others because of his deeds. But I think it's the way David reacted to this set of horrendous deeds that led him to a place of a broken heart that made him useful to God. We know from David's own self-reflection for about the year following this deed that he lived with personal torment. There was a gap between his finely tuned conscience and his behavior, and he knew that gap, and so he went into a spiritual and emotional funk during that period of time. David records these words in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. David was haunted by guilt, sapped his energy because he was living with that discrepancy between God's moral standard and his immoral behavior. It was at this time that the Lord set a trap for David. You might recall that uh, the Lord whispered to the prophet Nathan what David had done. And so Nathan was sent to David to tell a story. And the story was that there's a poor man and there was a rich man. The, the poor man had one little ewe lamb as a part of the family. It was a pet that had grown up with them, loved by the children. And there was this rich man who, of course, had everything he needed. But this rich man had a visitor come from out of town, and instead of wanting to diminish his own resources, he decided to take that lamb that belonged to the poor man, have it killed, dressed, and served to his out-of-town guest. Well, David takes the bait. He walks right into the story. David feigns a righteous indignation over this dastardly deed that this rich man has done, and then he shouts out, that a person who does such a thing deserves to die. And then Nathan, I think with perfect timing, said, you are the man. You have sinned against God. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. And in that moment, David had no place to hide. He was caught red-handed. He was exposed. The hounded heaven had traced him down, and he was cornered. And in reply to Nathan, all David could say was, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses. No justification. We read in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. How is it with what David has done that he could be a man after God's own heart? Perhaps this was his defining moment. This was the moment when he came to terms with himself for his heart was then cracked open and he would be available to God like he had never been before. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And of course, most of those hurts we bring upon ourselves that lead us where we need to go. So in light of David's story, let me identify four characteristics 
of what I think are a broken and contrite heart. How will we know whether this is true of us? The first one is that a person with a broken heart has given up any pretense of pretended goodness. See, David had finally, frankly, a, a privilege, and I choose that word carefully, of seeing what he was capable of. He peered starkly into his own heart. He had violated his most cherished principles. I think if Nathan the prophet had come to to David and said, David, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. Let me tell you what's going to happen with Bathsheba and all that's going to take place. What do you think David would have said? (laughs) Not me. (laughs) That's not the kind of person I am. But to have our heart broken is to be stripped of any false notion of our capacity for sin. We may carry around a subtle pride that we would never do the kinds of things that David did. This is because I think we tend to judge ourselves on the basis of the bad deeds that we have avoided. I've never committed adultery. I've never committed murder. We say to ourselves, I'm a fairly decent person. But what if we measured ourselves against opportunities missed? What does that say about the condition of our heart? Historically, we've divided sins into two categories. Sins of commission and sins of omission. And maybe it's those sins of omission that are really a, a more of an indicator of the state of our heart than actually the th- things that we have done wrong proactively. What if we measured the state of our hearts based upon being close to what we should or could do? We know that uh, there are people dying around this globe all the time, and we are well-fed, and we are not moved totally greatly to alleviate those conditions. We go about merrily our business, living in our comfort, knowing all along that there are kids born as orphans being raised by siblings who are orphans as well. Yet we sleep quite well at night, don't we? Sins of omission. Well, let me lighten it up a little bit and illustrate this in a little bit different way. In my high school and college years, I played some competitive tennis. And frankly, my normal game was so-so. I won a few, lost a few. And yet, one out of every 10 times, I played out of my mind. I mean, I picked that ball off my shoe tops. I creased the corner of the service line. Every ball I hit intentionally caught the line, of course. I could not be beaten on those days. I was invincible on those days. One out of ten times. So who was the real tennis player? How did I see myself? Well, of course I saw myself through that one out of ten times, the time that I was invincible. That was the real tennis player. In actuality, I was a pretty mediocre tennis player. But I didn't want to see myself that way. I want to see myself in the best possible light. How hard it is to look at the reality of our own souls. There was a man by the name of Yehiel Denur, who was a witness at the trial of Adolf Eichmann after World War II. Heil Denor was a Holocaust survivor. He had lost his family uh, during that time. And the moment came when he came into the courtroom and stood in front of Eichmann, who was sitting behind a glass enclosure to protect him. 
And as he stood there looking at Eichmann, he all of a sudden began to sob and cry and fall down on his knees. And everybody observing that in the courtroom that day thought he's reliving the horrors of the concentration camps. But afterwards, Dunor said, no, that wasn't what was going on at all. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he. And then with chilling clarity, Dunor said, Eichmann is in awe of us. Given the circumstances, we don't know what we would become. Those who have experienced the redemption of a 12-step program tell us how difficult it is to take that first step. And what is that first step? I confess that I am powerless over. (laughs) Over alcohol, over sex addiction, over fill in the blank. Oh, the humility and humiliation of it all to finally acknowledge that you can't defeat what is destroying you. That's a tough first step. But when you get down to the fifth step, it may be even more difficult because then you give a no-holds-barred confession to another person in the program about your misdeeds. And the saying goes like this. You are as sick as your sickest secret, and you will remain sick as long as it remains a secret. Wow. And so David was free to write in Psalm 51, verses 3 through 5. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. So you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, David writes. The first thing in relationship to a contrite and broken spirit is to come to terms with our pretended innocence. The second characteristic is that a broken, contrite heart has no room for self-righteous judgment. Dan preached to us a few weeks back about the elder brother who was the symbol for the Pharisees. And what were the Pharisees? They were the protectors of the law. They sat on a high and lofty perch and said, nobody can fulfill the law like we do. And they looked down upon others in judgment. Well, anyone who has come to terms with their own heart gives up that lofty perch of judgment and condemnation. Uh, David was no longer on any moral high ground. My favorite definition and distinction between the proud heart and the, hum- and the humble heart comes from Jonathan Edwards, that 17th, 18th century preacher in the Great Awakening. And that definition is on the screen. He says, Spiritually, spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others, whereas a humble saint is most jealous of himself. He is so suspicious of nothing in all the world as he is of his own heart. The spiritually proud person is apt to find fault with other saints, that they are low in grace, to be much in observance of how cold and dead they are, and being quick to discern and take notice of their deficiencies. But the eminently humble Christian has so much work to do at home that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. Folks, we have a lifelong project with ourselves, (laughs) 
to not be busy with other people's hearts in terms of judgment. We can be fellow strugglers with others and be on the road together, but we are not in a position to bruise others with our judgment or condemnation. We simply say with David in Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash, me, wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. So we've given up our pretended innocence. We cannot sit in judgment on others. But a humble and contrite heart is truly a teachable heart. In Psalm 51, verse 6, David writes, Surely you desire truth in inward parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. So let me ask you. Are our hearts eager to live in truth? Ever ask somebody to give you some feedback, maybe about the way you came across or some particular activity you're involved with, and their response to you is this. Well, do you want the truth, or should I lie and make you feel good? Doesn't everything inside of you scream out, lie and make me feel good? And then you think, No, I better hear the truth. Do we seek the truth? Do we invite the truth about ourselves? I've become aware in recent months that I sometimes wonder how I come across to people. What's the impact of my personality around those that I'm with? If I were to describe myself, would it be with the same descriptions that other people would have of me? I, I don't know. So let me offer a challenge to you and to me. If we're friends of the truth, I want you to go to somebody or some buddies that you trust. Now, that's an important qualifier. Somebody you know who's for you, somebody who you trust, whose heart you believe in. And ask them the following question. If you knew I wouldn't get defensive or angry, what hard truth would you like to tell me? Is there something you've been wanting to say to me but haven't dared to because of my reaction? Well, now is your chance. Do we want truth that much? A broken and contrite heart wants truth that much. So, you've given up pretended innocence. You can't stand in judgment. You have a teachable spirit. And then finally, here's the true irony of a broken and contrite heart. The broken and contrite heart is the joyful heart. Because it's the heart that God sees and is so pleased with. God never seems to be more pleased with us than when we are in the greatest need of him. When you read Psalm 32 and 51... These are are psalms of celebration. They're psalms of freedom. David is just alive with forgiveness. And so we read in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not account against him, and whose spirit there is no deceit. And then Psalm 51. Let me hear joy and gladness 
Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Restore the joy of my salvation. It's a wondrous thing that unvarnished repentance leads to an open-hearted welcome of God. Let me conclude with a story that Max Lucado tells that powerfully brings this truth home. It takes place in Brazil, rural village outside of Rio de Janeiro. Maria had raised her daughter, Cristina, from birth. Father had died early on. And Maria, in this rural village, had uh, gone to work as a maid, provided a loving home for Cristina. But as Cristina grew through her teenage years, she could see that she was becoming more and more independent and longing for the, the big city. She couldn't see herself settling down in this rural area, marrying a husband and, and having children and staying there. The lights of the big city beckoned her. Maria tried to warn Christina about what life waited her there. It wasn't all that she thought it was going to be. How was she going to support herself if she went for life in the big city? But one morning, Maria woke up and Christina was gone. And she knew where she had gone to. So she gathered together a few of her possessions, all the money that she had, and followed Christina into Rio. Before she left town, she stopped by one of those dollar photo booths and had some pictures of herself taken. And knowing that her daughter was like the prodigal, too proud proud to give up, Maria began to search for her in bars and hotels and nightclubs, places where prostitutes hung out. She knew that would be what Christina would need to do to support herself. And every place she went, she left a picture of herself on the bathroom mirror, on a hotel bulletin board, in a phone booth. And on the back of each one of those pictures, she wrote a message. Maria's money ran out, hadn't found her daughter, and she had to go back to her village. After a few weeks, Christina walked down the hotel stairs tired. Her eyes spoke of pain and fear. Her dream had become a nightmare. And when she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes spotted a familiar face on the mirror in that hotel. It was the picture of her mother. She went over and took that picture and looked what was written on the back. And she saw these words. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Isn't this the message of the father to the younger son whose life ended in a pigsty? When the father sees the son on that road returning home, we read in Scripture, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Wonderful portrayal of the father there on the screen. In full dash, in a sprint, running to the son, arms open, robes flying, ready to throw his arms around the son that has come home. 
And I think it was in that moment that the son saw the father's love for him, that he realized the pain that he inflicted on the father's heart and how loved he was. And so he said, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father doesn't even respond to what the son says. He just simply turns to his servants and said, get the party ready. (laughs) And who was the party for? For the son? Yeah. But really for the father. (laughs) The father wanted to celebrate that his son was back. God is never more pleased with us than when we are most in need of him. The broken and contrite heart is the heart in whom God dwells. In whom God is drawn most richly. And here's the territory we've come today. The broken and contrite heart recognizes the sinful capacity of our hearts. Has given up the moral high ground of judgment. Seeking truth in our lives. But lives in the joy of the Father's delight. So here's my homework assignment for you this week. Read Psalm 32 and 51. No, no, don't just read it. Live in it. Meditate on it. Read the story behind it, which is 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And then ask God to give you this kind of heart so that you can live in the Father's joy. Let's pray together. Lord God, keep that image in our mind of the Father running to us. The delight and the pleasure and joy in that full sprint and open arm embrace. Allow us to see our need and see your pleasure. And to live in that relationship and be free even as David learned to become free, if all that he had done, even with all the consequences of his actions, he found liberation because you embraced him and welcomed him. And may that be true of all of us as well, we pray. In Christ's name.